What's up, fam? Welcome to the fifth episode of Asking for a Mate, where the proven share their process. Today's special guests serve our communities with their talents day in, day out. So we are very lucky they have freed up their busy schedules to kick it with us. The Honorable Alpito William Seal, current member of parliament and minister for Pacific Peoples, unpacks current events and lessons from his long esteemed career in politics. Alongside him, from the prestigious Fuimana music family, is another Otara legend, Tony Fuimana, who also drops great insights on his many experiences in various spaces. So much advice, experience, and knowledge are not for here, so pull up a seat at the pellet table as our guests share their stories that will hopefully inspire you on your own journey. Cheers! I remember when I was really, really young, my mum would always pace back and forth every day for the letterbox waiting for a letter to arrive from overseas. Um, and when she received the letter from overseas was the most exciting thing, you know, for her. And then that over years became a phone call connect where she'd be waiting to be connected to a phone call. Then it became a direct phone call on a landline. Then it becomes to mobile phones and now we have social media. So in terms of the communication, um, transition we've had over so many years and you know in the music industry we've gone from obviously vinyl to the cassettes to the cds to mp3s so for you guys who have seen this huge technological transition where do you see the fields that you're in heading whether that be in the political circles in this new kind of media paradigm we're in as well as the music industry yeah i mean it's the word or what's said in Upolu is now found in Sabai. That's what's happening. Um, what we say here will be heard all over the place. It's changed politics. Uh, for politicians, you can't hide. And but um, and I'm not necessarily sure whether that's the a good thing for for, for the well-being of politicians. <laughs> um, but not only can't you hide, there's, uh, there's this demand for instant responses. Mm. You know, all requests must come through my office because the office will have to decide in terms of my own priorities of where they will send me, you know, to this event or that event. But people, um, and that process takes a bit of time, <laughs> you know. So people can access me through LinkedIn, <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> Facebook. And, and um, you know, when they're asking me, I can't help myself and say, look, um, what is it? <laughs> Send it through. And um, the office is now, and when you've got a small office, it puts a lot of pressure on, on those people. So that and that guy. I think um, in what we are encountering as a New Zealand parliament is the ability for people to manipulate social media and what's said in the house by somebody gets twisted, gets added on to, and suddenly it's about something totally, totally different. So in that sense, it's quite bad. But then the span, uh, the attention span of people is short. So you don't get to see the context of things. You don't get to see the background of things. You just get to see what whoever's producing it wants you to see. Um, and but it's now sidetracked um, your your mainstream media. You know, we don't you the public don't need to listen to the parliamentary gallery to get the reports of what's happening in the house. They can tune in to any of our accounts, social media accounts, and each of us will do that. Um, so I'm not sure. You know, in that way, politics will naturally change, but. Our laws will need to keep up with it. There's a lot that we need to still get our heads around. I know in the Pacific community, Pacific leaders in the Pacific region, they want to ban Facebook. You know, they don't know how to respond to all the criticism they're getting because it's criticism from overseas, mainly. Um, and then the other thing that I, uh, I have found is some of your traditional village structures, they're having to now make decisions around so-and-so videoing certain conversations by village people, because it's open funny, mm -hmm. that they have no business videoing, you know, and trying to decide whether, and then the others, what they're seeing is people living overseas criticizing villages back in the islands, 
And those village councils are saying, hey, how do we control this? How do we put a stop to this? One village have decided, if your relatives living in Australia says something that brings uh, disrepute to the reputation of any Matais, they'll find the family in the islands because of actions by somebody overseas. So we've not yet, as a, as a world, settled on how do we deal with all this? You know, one of my missions um, in the Pacific region was to encourage the leaders to have an open, uh, allow the press to come in and be quite open about it. And, and all of them raised concerns around um, Facebook, literally. So um, there are some serious concerns around it. On the, on the positive front, you're absolutely right with, um, I remember those telephone calls. You had to place a particular call in the Apia post office and one phone, five people all talking and everybody else here trying to talk into this one phone. Um, and now, you know, decisions are being made in my respective families that involves relatives in um, not just throughout New Zealand, in Australia, Hawaii, different parts of the state, including those um, bongas in Samoa, <laughs> all coming together and having a, a, a family discussion about how are we going to conduct these ceremonies at the next family reunion, you know, and so forth. So there's actually that fantastic um, benefit of social media. But as, as governments, I think governments are still now only just starting to, to try and, and work through, are our laws up to date to try and ensure that, yes, freedom of speech is available, but you still need to manage um, these relationships. I think what's happening now in, in this field is opens the whole spectrum to everyone. Anybody can do anything because you can do it from home now. You're not limited anymore. You could be somebody who writes music, directs, plays a game, tells stories. Uh, you, nothing is restricted now. And um, we, we're seeing that now. So with, with, with music and stuff, I, I see there's a... I don't really like the way music's going in, in that way because people aren't making money of it. And, and so there's still a lot of work to do on that. But when it comes to telling stories, I think, and I think this is a, a cool time to be around, you know, because you can get your message across. The fact that we can sit around now and talk about, you know, um, don't drink and drive and do this and it goes online and people, it's not, it's accessible. I mean, accessible to everyone around the world mm -hmm. to see a message like this. I mean, you couldn't do that, you know, 10 years ago. So this, I think this is an awesome time. I think this is great, you know, uh, Donald Trump uses it, and he uses it exceedingly well. That's, that's a guy that has seen the potential of that and, and, and can use it the way that it's supposed to be used. Whether you agree with his message or not, he, he, <laughs> he can, can, can do it, you know, he can do it. Our own Prime Minister, she's, when you still saw her in New York and she was walking across the road, she could video, she could film herself doing that thing, where, and she's accessible now. Yeah. Every week you can get a message from her. And the message is always positive and she's keeping everybody informed. And it's like, man, it's crazy that you can do that. You have a funeral, say, in America, you can be looking into it, yeah. watching it. So, I mean, the only limitations we, that you'll have is the limitations that you place on yourself. Mm -hmm. And that, it's the same with your music. With anything you want to do, you can do it. Um, this is the best time, I think, to do it. I, I can't wait to see what it's like if I'm still around in 20 years' time because I want to see where gaming goes to because I want to see where virtual reality goes to, and I want to see how that all bends and everything and how we start telling our stories better. Yeah. You know, will, it, will, it, will, this be a, will there be a better way to tell the story? A breakdown of how you, your background, where you started, and how you came to be where you are. Oh, gosh. Taking me a ways to the good old Tara days. Um, but I suppose in many ways I've... Thinking back, um, I wrote a, I wrote a essay in form one and form two beds intermediate school um, about who are the people that have influence in your life. So at eleven or twelve, I credited my grandfather. My grandfather um, 
blessed me, as is the tradition of blessing young people, um, to say, we believe that you would have a future in politics. And that's always stayed with me. And I know a lot of my aunties um, would tease me about it, in a, not in a bad way, but would tease me and say, here's, here's the future Prime Minister of Samoa. Um, that stayed with me until um, right through to high school at Hillary College, um, where I enjoyed debates, but I was an emotional debater, um, more so than others who could be quite clinical with the facts. I could be quite emotional in, in things. And, um, but it wasn't until um, after school, when you're starting to work with that, the Catholic Society, the Samoa Catholic Society in Otara. These are people who, during the Dawn Raid period, um, worked with the priest out of Otara and the priest out of um, Grayland Catholic Church to advocate for people who had been picked up on the streets or who had been picked up from the homes that were raided in the early hours. And, and I remember vividly in, would have been around 76, 77, 76, early hours of the morning, would have been about four. I shared a bedroom with other siblings and suddenly um, there was a lot of screaming in the house and my aunties and sisters in the next room. I think what had happened was the police came into the morning, shown a torch in the eyes of my dad and demanded to come in that there were people in the house. And we had cousins living in the garage. That was quite a traumatic experience. And all of that period, I think most of us at Hillary College, we talked about what was happening. Um, in fact, I remember coming home during that period also after some dance practices. This was the first polyfest. Um, and I had gone home with a machete because we'd been practicing knife dance. And I got picked up, roughed up by the police, uh, being a brown person. They took the machete away, um, accepted my explanation that I'd come back from. But when I got home, I, I said to my mum, you'll need to buy another machete. And she asked me what happened. I said, please took it. And I remember my mum, she was infuriated because of that context of that period. But it was the elders of the Catholic Society, the Samoan Parish, who came together and with um, a couple of the Balangi priests um, from Otara and Grayland who advocated and pursued to make sure that our family members who had been picked up during that dawn May period got an opportunity either to stay or at least to return home with some dignity rather than being um, you know, treated as criminals. Um, and so those things affected you. And when the elders ask you to come and, you know, put leaflets out or stand at the table at the flea market, you know, and call out to people and check whether you're on the roll or put up hoardings, um, all of that, you begin to get involved in it. And the elders gave me a lot of opportunities. I remember Peter Gray, who was a councillor at the time, asked me to lead the Samoan branch, um, which we did. And one thing led to another. Uh, Colin Will was the, I don't know whether you remember, Colin Will was the Minister for Aquaculture at the time. He was a member of Parliament for Otara, but he didn't live in Otara. He lived up north, still lives up north. And no you know, disrespect to him. We just felt that if you were going to represent our community, you need to live in our community to know what's going on. Um, and so in our way, we asked them to consider retirement <laughs> in our polite way. <laughs> and uh, I think in the end, he, he did consider that. And when he stepped down, we were ready to replace him. And our line was, it, Otara was one of the strongest uh, uh, place for Pacific vote, therefore it needed a Pacific representation. Um, and we, we rallied quite a bit of support. I worked through the Labour Party uh, structure. 
that's where I met Ruth Dyson. Um, she was the president of the Labour Party. We put our arguments to why we needed a Pacific person to her. Party came on board. Len Brown was a good friend at the time. Um, he was uh, a lawyer who was providing pro bono work, helping people with uh, who were overstayers. Um, and so we enlisted his support for that. Bui Mark Goshi was somebody that we reached out. Our desire to have Pacific representation in Parliament aligned. Bui was the General Secretary of the um, what used to be the Hotel, Hospital, Restaurant Workers Union. And people need to understand that that union, mainly cleaners, a lot of cleaners at the Auckland Hospital, in the pubs, in the restaurants, and those cleaners were women, and they were predominantly Pacific women. And they were the staunchest supporters of having political representation. Uh, two names come to mind, um, Philly Few, a New Wayan woman who lived in Onehanga, has passed on, married to a Samoan man, and Lizley Law out of um, Christchurch. Both women, Philly worked for Auckland Hospital, Liz worked for um, Wellington Hospital. These women were the most powerful women I've ever come across. They knew how to deal with people by swearing at them. <laughs> and I said that English was bad, but they knew every F-letter word there was in the English dictionary, and they weren't afraid to use it. And I'm not saying that they used it on a day-to-day -day basis or even a sentence, but they, they had oratory skill to the point where they felt to get a point across, they needed to slam the desk and say four-letter words. And it didn't matter whether it was Helen Clark at the time, or Jeffrey Palmer, or Mike Moore, or even David Lange. Um, and I think if you dig a little bit deeper, this is this generation here, into the history of the workforce here and the participation of our Pacific peoples um, in the trade union, they will see that many of the changes that have occurred in the political sphere as well as in the workplace you know, these women had a large contribution, a significant contribution to it. And all those women were um, fantastic supporters. I was young, I was cheeky, so they were very supportive of me. <laughs> so when I came along, we had uh, Taito Philip Field, of course, was the first. Um, and then Wui Mark Goshi. And Wui Mark Goshi was the first uh, minister of Pacific Heritage. Then you had Winnie, Winnie Laban, Lord Manuel Winnie Laban, Lord Manuel Dane Winnie Laban, the first Pacific woman. Then Charles Chabal, first Tahitian who now works for UNDP in New York, or somewhere out in that part of the world. And then I come along, and because we had the first Pacific um, in Parliament, first Pacific minister, first Pacific woman, I said, I will be the first youngest and most handsomest of the lot. <laughs> and, and I was cheeky enough to be saying all that stuff. And the women, um, Philly and Liz, were staunch advocates. But because my Samoan was better than the others, and, and my ability to use my Samoan in both English um, uh, contexts as well as the Samoan contexts, um, I suppose in many ways I built the confidence of the, those elders to be able to be able to speak for them, uh, speak for them in serious uh, situations, um, like telling certain ministers that their policy was wrong when it came to immigration, or speak to them in a, in a humorous way where you can convey dignity and mana to somebody like David Longy and his advocacy for people who didn't have the means to access, um, you know, legal representation. Well, our, our family started off in Parnell, and the uh, first lot of Poimana family came into Parnell probably um, early 60s. <clears throat> and um, so a lot of them end up in Parnell because it was close to the docks, <clears throat> came off the ships and, and lived there. And so that's where our first lot of music started from there. Um, we all lived, we, 
my dad uh, and our whole extended family lived in one big house in Parnell. And eventually those families went and our family of four were left there. And the, the way that our music started was that there was a, a building being built up the road um, they were renovating it or something. And because we were so broke, we were always looking around for food and stuff like that. And we wandered in there and we found a tape deck. So we decided to take it back home. And inside that tape deck was the Bee Gees and um, Alton John's Yellowback Road. And from that, from those two tapes, my older brother, who was quite young, managed to work out harmonies. And those, I can, whenever I hear those songs, I can, I know of it, lyrics to all those albums that we had. Um, so after Parnell, we went out to Otara and um, we were, we took our sort of poverty from Parnell into Otara. So we were the ones when you walk around Otara who were cutting their lawns with the, you know, scissors because, you know, it would grow. Yeah, I can hear laughter because we knew those people. Yeah. Uh, but in, in Parnell, our, our closest um, rub with politics was with uh, Richard Preble uh, because he lived in Parnell. And my dad wasn't that flash when it came to drinking and managing his um, social welfare benefit. And so us kids were left to sort of wander around for ourselves. Anyway, we ran into uh, Richard Preble and he, he said, look, if you ever need some help, um, just come up there. So of course, we'd go every, most weeks and, you know, could, could you commit some money? And he'd give us like $20. And back in the, you know, early 70s, $20 was a lot. So we'd buy, we'd have enough food to look after us kids. <clears throat> so, Back into, um, we went into Otara and that's when our music started to sort of um, start to grow. We ended up at Hillary College. I went to, I got um, kicked out of beds and ended up at Ferguson. And, but I went in Hillary College, my older brother um, started hanging around with these other guys and they started to form a band. <coughs> it's pretty basic because Otara back in the <coughs> um, 70s, I didn't have a lot of music stuff. Our music started to grow because Phil started to um, understand how music worked. And early 80s, we in the, in the school, he left school and started working as a cleaner. And he was allowed to use the school's tape decks, which were those small square ones. And he had learnt that if you, and a lot of guys did it later on, that if you recorded on this one, you could play it back and then, you know, could, you know, and, and, that's how he learnt how to work out, you know, how his harmonies work and um, how the guitars and basses and all that worked. And my role in, in music with him during that time was really just to carry things or, you know, that, that sort of thing. That was my only role, but I loved it and I still remember his first song. I, I, I can still hear, I can still hear him singing it because it was, uh, it meant so much to me and it meant so much to him. He actually liked the girl that was working there at, as a cleaner, but, uh, but the song was called uh, Fight, the, uh, Fight the Fire. And it was, um, he, had, he had connected it with um, the Brothers Johnson song that was an instrumental. So he had, he had flipped it, he had recorded it and had reversed it. So it sounded quite crazy, but he had sung over it and he gave the tape to the girl. You know, the girl didn't return his advances, but I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, if she'd, he had met him later on, maybe, I don't know. From, from there, Phil joined up with a Christian group um, called Y1, and he ventured, he became a bass player for them. He was one of the first, back in those days, Youth of Christ had this huge thing where they would go through the whole country talking about the gospel. And in 1984, he did that. And he was originally a bass player, but he also became uh, a vocalist. He, he never knew he could sing, but we knew, but he was, there was never an opportunity. So he did that, and at that same time, uh, my younger brother, Paulie, uh, he was starting to understand music, and so was I. Uh, so Phil joined this group, and he left us. And as a family, of a close family, when our matriarch left, we were all just kids, it, 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 we all struggled to do that. But I remember Phil had sat me down because I'd really relied on him, we all did. But for me, he was my dad. And he said, look, Tony, I've, I've really got to do this because if I don't do this, this is all we're going to be. We're going to be nothing. And, and that's the reason why he left. He used to buy all my clothes. He used to, you know, protect me at school. He used to drag me along to things, but he wanted, he wanted something better for us. 
And he always said to me, music is the thing that will take us out of poverty. And he, that's why he chased after it so, so strongly. For me, I went in a, a different direction. I joined in with a, a, a missionary organization. And I really didn't know what I was going to do, but Phil wanted me to do something. So I joined that, and I ended up being a dancer in this group. That we were toured through Australia and through Asia. When we all, when it got to the early early nineties, and um, we had we had done our stuff with the the Christian thing, and we were sort of in a funny bind. We didn't really know what we were doing. Phil wanted. He started working with a group of people in Otara, and. Um, and he worked in within the uh, Otara, uh, used to be into the library, there was like a community centre there, Len Brown was one of the main dudes there. And through that he met up with some guys who, were, who wanted to put together a group who wanted to do some recording and, and, and around that became Pride, or Proud, sorry. And Proud was a collection of all these Pacific Island artists um, who were who were extremely streetwise but had no idea of how the music industry worked and neither did Phil. So Phil was given the task of managing a whole lot of these um, South Auckland dudes who, you know, you couldn't really keep tabs on them mm -hmm. and take them all through the country with this hip-hop and R&B. We knew that it would do well here in, in, in South Auckland, but we never knew how it would be outside of that. Phil wanted me to go along with him, but at that time we had really cemented what my role was and what his was at, at that time in the early 90s, which was, I was to support him. What that basically meant was, I had to work and send him money when he rang. And so I was happy with that, and so that's what I did. So Phil took all these guys, ran around New Zealand and came back. At that time, Paulie, uh, he had also had a group called OMC, but OMC originally was an instrumental band. It wasn't actually, it didn't have any singing. And when um, the Proud album was being put together, they put this OMC track together and um, the producer at the time said, look, let's get some vocals in it. And so that's when Paulie Herman, Paul Ave, and um, some other dudes jumped on it and uh, Phil produced the whole thing. That was Phil's first uh, or second commercial track that he had done. Uh, and um, Proud uh, was one of the first compilation albums of really all these unpublished sort of artists that were sitting around the time, guys like Day Hummel and uh, just a whole lot, Inglesi and... There was a whole lot of guys that came through proud that are now actually really established artists, which, you know, is quite an amazing thing. When, um, when went later on into the 90s after proud, Phil had all these artists around him, but we, he didn't know what to do with them. So he put together, I think, Urban Pacifica Records. Now, Urban Pacifica Records has this big thing where people go, oh, that was a huge thing, but it was really just Phil. Phil trying to do stuff um, with nothing. And so all these other guys became Urban Pacific Records. We actually had an outlet for an album. And um, so that album plus our own album called Foimana was put together. At that same time, and we're heading into 97, and at that same time, Paulie was uh, experimenting with OMC. It was just him and two vocalists. And um, he connected up with this producer who they had this idea for the song called How Bizarre. And then they, they wrote it and produced it and it shot off. And in 1996, it became number one in eight different countries around the world. In 97, we toured it, and he asked me to go on the tour. Originally, I just said no, I didn't want to. Um, but my older brother had said to me, you have to do the same thing that you did with, I had to do it with him, I just had to support. So my main role with my, my brother and his band was just to support him. And so I ended up playing the bass and the guitar and um, touring around with him, and the experience was amazing. Touring, touring around New Zealand is an amazing thing as an artist, but to tour around the world as the number one uh, band in America at the time, is, uh, you know, it's uh, crazy. We managed to play on an aircraft carrier, we were playing in, in, with all these amazing artists that I used to look up to. Um, so we did that for, for a long period of time. At the same time, Phil was, him and Urban Pacifica were winning, New Zealand Music Awards. I think the one we won three, three in that '97 period, and then Paul came back and he started winning awards. And so our family all up were winning. We won about 15 New Zealand Music Awards over that 90, 1990s period, and it was amazing for us as a family because we were able to look back and and, and see how far we had come from the family in Otara that had nothing 
to this family that Phil had this dream of lifting our eyes just a little bit above the horizon and, and being able to you know, achieve something. But what our whole idea was to empower our friends, our families around that whole thing. If we did well, everybody else did well. And from there, I, you know, we started um, some work with um, the music awards. And, and then I worked, when my brothers died, I went into mental health. Um, you know, it's for the last seven years and it's been a huge journey for me because I really wanted to work with Pacific Islanders in mental health and I saw how they were treated because I, from my own experience, when I discovered this thing and I, and I didn't get good help, then I realized if I wasn't going to get help and I had to help myself, then maybe people who weren't aware weren't getting help. And so I went into that field thinking maybe I could help. And so I stayed in the field for seven years. And now I'm working for Vakatautua. Um, it's only a new thing, but I've always wanted to work with Pacific Islanders and directly, and I'm you know pretty excited about it. And so that's basically our family and my own journey through this whole thing. So it's been it's, it's been exciting, man. That that song, how bizarre, ninety six, ninety seven, mm. when it came out, and um, the the few of us Pacific in the political arena actually quite, felt quite inspired by it. Not just because it was popular in New Zealand, but that it got carried into the US and the label OMC was part of that, Otara. <laughs> because um, one of the things that the Māori elders drilled into me um, constantly, and then when I got onto uh, Manukau City Council as the ward representative for Otara, um, it was that Otara was the capital of Manukau City. The people who lived during that period and had those experiences, many of them have gone on to uh, hold significant roles or play uh, important roles in just advancing the kind of New Zealand that we all want to have. And that's a New Zealand where you respect yeah. the differences, you respect the dignity and mana of people. And just because they may not understand, I'll, I'll pick this up from one of Swid, just because they don't understand our experiences doesn't mean that their experience is the only important one. <laughs> I was just about to latch onto that. That's one of the questions from online. They haven't given a name, but any thoughts around this, Swid bring up the, yeah. bunga, the, the term bunga yeah, you know, back I, in those days in the context? Yeah, no, I, um, look, you know, um, in my line of work as a minister of the government and an associate minister of justice and courts, um, I have a lot of young people, um, Māori, who continue to say, you know, the system is racist. As I engage with our um, young people across the regions of New Zealand, you have young people who say to me that the teachers will display um, attitudes of racism towards them. And so um, the sad thing about it is we're in the 2019. Um, as, a new, as a migrant in the early 60s to New Zealand, um, born in the islands, but coming here, I experienced racism. You know, um, people who would call you coconuts, you know, people who would call you overstayers during the dawn raid period, all of that. But, um, and you'd think that that's all gone and dusted, but it's still around. Um, that's not to say there aren't good people recognising that this causes harm and that you've got to do something about it. Sad thing is when young people, young brown people, who are in, in our education system today say when they want to be a scientist, the teacher will look at them and say, no, that's not for you, maybe something else, early childhood education teacher or something. When it comes to mental health and stuff and... and Pacific Islanders have always been on the back foot with, with that. We've, we don't understand it. We, we, we try our hardest to understand it. The government, and you know, rightly so, has put in a lot of money into it, but our people on the grassroots still don't understand it. And, I, and when, I, when I go and talk to people who in our community about mental health, I'll say this, I'll say, like for you, if you're the uh, primary breadwinner in your family and you become mentally unwell, what does your partner do today? What do you do? We've got all this money out there. What does she do? Because you can't speak for yourself because you've lost your voice because mental health has come up. And she doesn't speak English. What does she do? Who pays my bills this week? So she, who, what happens? 
a lot of people can't even answer that. They just don't because the information that we're getting is is, is, is reaching. We I mean we're targeting good areas, but for our Pacific Island people, we're still trying to catch up with that whole mental health thing. First off, we don't accept it for a lot of our people. Secondly, we don't know how to how to talk to our folk in the grassroots. So the first thing is you go to your GP. But when you go to your GP and your psychiatrist, you they don't really know who this person is. So then the what I say to them is, look, write down what you know about your loved one, your baseline. You, are they this, 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 and this? Because when a psychiatrist comes in to see your loved one, they take it from the illness up, not illness down. Mm. So they don't know the baseline. So they see this person that's unwell. So for Pacific Islanders, they'll be going, oh, you're the expert. So the whole thing is that we've got to get some more communication with our Pacific Island people, you know, advocate more for more people that can interpret this information so they can understand it. So for me, who had to deal with it and I became aware of it, I was able to change my path. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I thought, if I can sort of figure this out a bit, then hopefully I can help others. The traditional views, you know, uh, our traditional thinking has always been, you know, uh, somebody with a mental illness, there's something wrong with them, you know, push them aside. And I think all the work that's happening with Michael King, um, a number of community organisations, and now the the stamp by by the government to say, look, we need to deal with this. Our community have now got to take up the opportunity to really deal with it, and that is basically to become aware and to be um, respectful of those who who do have the illness, to acknowledge that whatever beliefs we may have are wrong. And they're not, um, we shouldn't use that as a basis for how we interact with people. But I've become so aware of people in our communities who need help in that space. And, and now it's really important that we not only provide safe environment to talk about it, but also making sure that the support is there, professional support, clinical support. Just, just to latch onto that, because it's become quite obvious through both of what you guys are talking about, it's about changing the perception around it. One of our partnerships is with Keys Down Real Talk, and it's about trying to change the perception around drink driving, because for a huge amount of our communities, it's still just viewed as this, it's fine to just drink and drive. Uh, and so do you guys have any stories around yeah, drink my, driving? My biggest one was back in the um, early... Uh, early 70s, when we were quite young in Parnell, we had this car. My dad, I don't know how he got it, had this um, young, uh, old Ford car, and AP5, I think it was called, and our car couldn't climb the hill. So we always had to park it down the bottom of this road, and every, in a few days, someone would steal parts. Anyway, my dad, because he wasn't that, he wasn't that good at managing his drinking, would, be, would drink and drive us wherever we went. And so one day we were driving along Mission Bay. Back then, it's not how it is now. Uh, he was driving too fast. And he, he took this corner and my older brother fell out, just went straight out. Because back then, you'll know, um, seatbelts, the door opened and went straight out and the car, um, you know, sort of rolled over and stuff. And from that day on, it, because I was so young, you know, um, it left a lasting impression for me. It, it, my dad never drove, my dad actually never drove again. He, he had the opportunity to do so, but he never did. Um, because I think that, that that time there made a huge impression. He still, he still drank and stuff, but he never drove. Because I think he learned his lesson when you, know, when, when you got your kids in the car, you know, you, you're drinking, it's, and the kid goes flying out. Just, you know, thank God that um, he didn't hit a tree, yeah, another yeah. car was coming, and all those things, you know. I mean, that, that culture of um, drinking and drive is, is dead, literally. Because <laughs> um, when I grew up, everybody did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and um, you know, you weren't wearing seatbelts. You had a bottle in between your legs. And, but as a teenager, I got myself into trouble. Um, I, I mean, I got my driver's license at 15 you know, um, full license, yeah. because there was a need for me to be driving my mum around for shopping, for a whole number of other things when my dad wasn't around working. Um, 
And of course, um, I had the family car a lot of times. <laughs> and uh, had a group of friends. <laughs> you know, uh, I remember I, I did crash the car at one point in time. And, I can't remember the lie I made. <laughs> it scared yeah. the living daylights out of me. But it's funny, as teenagers, um, in hindsight, you, you think you're bulletproof, you know. I mean, I got myself into real trouble, not with the family, but with the law, because, um, you know, I, got, I took off, <laughs> chased, <laughs> and got a ticket um, for drink driving. And I didn't pay any attention to it and went overseas. And when I came back, the, the, the fine was started off a hundred something and it was over 3,000 or something, you know. Um, and to this day... You're still paying it off. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a mark on yeah. my record. It's mm. on. So when I nominate myself... Um, Put my hand up to be a member of parliament, I declare it. Mm. Now I'm declaring it publicly. <laughs> 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 but I declare it that, that I got that ticket um, for drunk driving. Um, and it's not something that I can talk proudly about, but I can say to you that I suppose, you know, I'm saying to my sons and daughters, please don't do that. But in my time, you just felt bulletproof, you'd do it. And you only feel regret afterwards. Yeah. You feel the regret and all the, the emotion that comes with it when you crash the car or when you get a ticket, feel the regret that you, are, you have this record that you cannot remove that's on there. It takes you and any time that anybody goes and looks through um, Ministry of Justice records, they'll find that I have that record for drunk driving. Regret it to this day. Um, and I'm sharing it in the hopes that <laughs> others might learn from my mistake. <laughs> it's a crazy thing, eh? Because yeah. I can, I, I know, for people who have died because mm. they have, you know, drunk mm. and drive. Yeah, you know, I know. It. Yeah. I, I remember mm. some of them quite, quite clearly. A place where I worked, the guy worked with us. You know, the next day he, he wasn't there, and they had a party. A school friend of ours. You know, there's. New Zealand, New Zealanders aren't that flash at it. Yeah. You know, just don't yeah. drink and drive. It's crazy. Uh, but I have to say, um, in like I have noticed the change. You know, yeah. the, the my generation who grew up in that period today, they're very responsible. You know, but then of course, as you get older, you become a little bit more responsible. Um, I, I have to say that when I drive, um, work around the region, um, you see the habits that we displayed in the 70s and 80s are the habits that are also being used around the Pacific region, you know. Although I've also noticed some changes in, uh, in compliances by uh, the laws around the region, which is a good thing. But it highlights a point. Um, you know, whether it's this issue of drink and driving, whether it's the issue of mental health, um, those issues for our community cannot be confined to New Zealand. Um, and I've been quite clear in my thinking that everything that we deal with when it comes to the Pacific community, we actually must extend our reach to the Pacific region um, because our families are constantly moving between islands. There are no borders when it comes to families, you know. Uncles and aunts and grandparents come here for funerals, for weddings, for birthdays. We do the same. In the same way that um, somebody who lives here of Ngāpuhi descent, they'll go up north. Or somebody of Tainui descent, they'll go down to Waikato. For us as Pacific peoples, we will gravitate to Niue, Samoa, Tonga, Cook Islands, because those are ancestral lands, our ancestral ties, genealogy, and those connections. So when it comes to these social issues um, of mental health, there's a real need to be sharing that information around the region. Case in point, to somebody, um, family that I'm 
well aware of. Their son died in Samoa because the police did not know how to deal with somebody with a mental health illness. Um, so there's a need to have that dialogue and to be sharing information. You know, um, drink driving, in particular, the smoking thing. You know, we're all, all the, um, the experts are saying, you know, drink driving will kill you. We all know that. We see it on, the, on our TV ads. But there are groups of people in New Zealand who still think they can test it out. And similarly, it's a message that also has to be shared with the wider Pacific region. So uh, I'm quite adamant that everything that we deal with with the Pacific community in New Zealand, we must also find ways to deal with it and share best practice, share data, share our professionalism, share information with the Pacific and somehow yeah. try and work together in dealing with that. I think it's, I think also it's, it's quite easy as for us to like point the finger at, say, the people who you know make the alcohol and stuff and, and all that. It's, it's easy for us, but... Really, it's that you create a product, but it doesn't force you to go out and drink three cases and drive a car. You know, that's your choice. It's a dumb choice, but you choose to do that. It's no different when you putting on sunscreen. There's the sunscreen there, and if you don't use it, you get sunburned. Whose fault is it? Is it the sunscreen coming? No, you got that choice. It's a matter of using your head. If you want to drink, drink recently, cool, that's cool. I know I, I, don't, I don't drink a lot. I might drink now and again, but I've got the opportunity to do it. The reason why I don't do it is because I just choose not to. I can drink and drive. It's easy. I mean, yeah. that makes 0% now. Yeah, I've not really, not really been into that. It's almost like, you know, drink water then. Yeah, but, you know, cool. If you want to, you know, drink um, 0% and all that, if you like that taste, then that's pretty cool. But you can, it's a, it's a choice. You know, they're offering a choice. Don't be an idiot and go and drink a whole case and think you can drive a million miles an hour home because you can't. I remember riding a motorbike being drunk and almost crashing, you know, and that's just crazy. So it's easy to point the finger because it's easy to do that, you know, it's easy to do that. But you've got to, you've got to you know, take some of the responsibility yourself. For you guys, as a practical thing, like when you walk into Parliament, do you guys get into character? Is, is there something, is there a mindset that happens for you guys to become what you need to be on your battlefield, so to speak, whether it's the battlefield of battling the music industry or battling politicians yeah. and so forth? Yeah. I think there's a, there's a certain amount of preparation that you've got to mentally prepare yourself for, um, whether it's going into the house to deliver a speech. You know, I, I sort of need to prepare myself. I try and get into the mood. What is it that I'm wanting to convey? If it's... Um, if it's a real technical um, uh, uh, bill that we're talking about, there's nothing sexy in it, and you just roll your eyes and what's, <laughs> and you try and make sure that you're saying what needs to be said. But if it's uh, if it's a free fall debate, um, I generally am quite um, look forward to that sort of thing. Um, but you're also preparing, you know, how do you respond to something that the other side. Uh, throws at you. In terms of preparing for questions, um, yeah, there's a, there's a certain amount of preparation because you know what the first question is, but you don't know what the following questions are. But you can anticipate. When you're in that circle, in that environment, your senses become attuned to how others might behave towards you. Um, and similarly for speeches, um, for any speech that I'm to deliver, um, I want to have those speech notes from the officials way before and and because the the officials who write the speech they're trying to follow policy and they'll they'll write what policy you should be speaking but for me as the as the politician I I have the freedom to be able to politicize whatever <laughs> speech I give and so um, I want to be able to include the messages that I'm wanting to pursue. Um, with the international arena, it's a bit different, different because, um, you know, um, there are certain individuals you meet along the way that you think, oh my goodness, I hope I never meet that person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, certain countries whose uh, policies are different from ours. Mm -hmm. 
and um, and it's really a, a difficult balancing act that you have. But as 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 if I'm representing New Zealand, I'm no longer myself. I'm myself in how I convey it. I'm myself in the words that I'll use in the speech. But the message is a government message, and so. I'm able to release all the frustration I have with advisors before I go out and deliver the, the tame speech that I often, because I'll have people around me, Minister, you can't say it that way. <laughs> or Minister, if you say that, you'll just totally destroy our diplomatic relationships with that country. <laughs> um, so I think there's, there's a certain amount of preparation. I think it's like the league. Um, <laughs> before a big game, you know, yeah, there's a bit of nervousness, a preparation, and everybody's got their own routine. For us in, in the political world, I think it's preparation, and it's preparation before you go into, mm. it's knowing the answers, the questions you're going to ask. You don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. And so the preparation part is, is really important. Um, and the people relationship, see the, I've carved out this role, um, um, with the support of the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, that as Minister of Pacific Peoples, our interests are not confined to New Zealand, that we do have an interest in what happens to the Pacific region. And, and more importantly, New Zealand plays this role that we uh, have a duty to work and support the Pacific uh, Island Forum leaders' decisions and to help use our platforms to amplify the voices of the Pacific. And in that capacity, um, preparation is really important, but it's not enough just to read reports. You've got to be engaged with people and to talk to them, to hear it from them, rather than just hearing from reports. There's a number of things. Reports get sent from the bottom, you know, up, and by the time it gets up, it's been cut and slashed, etc. that you get uh, a version of what the original report was. And so it's always important. This is a lesson I learned many, many years ago from um, some of my political mentors. Um, you, you read the official report, but you better also check with sources in that space and just get briefings of them so that you're well-armed, well-prepared before you go in. But yes, there is a certain amount of preparation. The, the people that come into it um, make the difference. But for me, if I, when I approach things, I have, I have to have a, a, over, a big overview of it. It's like with mental health, for instance, I see the bigger picture where a family's here, where would they want to end up? And so what message can I tell them along that line? So I'm confident in, in what I want to try and achieve when, when I approach a project. Um, but I will usually know exactly where the, my goal is. I always know what I'm trying to achieve. I don't know how I'm going to get there in the middle, but I know where I can start. Mm. Um, but I know what my goal is. So when the movie, I knew what my goal was before I even got the first actor and then talked through it. Yeah. What's some um, tips you guys can give all our audience that are wanting to aspire to such levels as yourselves? I think uh, the first thing is don't ever think you've made it to the top. Don't uh, Always keep creating. Never give up. Always, always keep your eyes on the horizon. From a creative point of view, uh, surround yourself with other creative people. You know, um, that always helps. Read stuff about what other people are doing. Um, don't stay in your shell and, and, and think that you're being creative there is going to make you creative out there. You know, practice your craft, practice it in front of your family, practice in front of your friends. You know, be open to uh, criticism, be open to uh, to, to people speaking into your life because that's the way that you'll grow. Your art is um, a reflection of you. When I do anything with uh, creatively, I have like the um, the weight of my family on me, you know. And if you know my family, that's pretty big. But um, they, for for me, I I I can I I love that feel of it of creating something. And I think anybody who is creative, whether it's musically or uh, like in film or, or, or whatever, if you love doing creative stuff, you love being in that zone, um, don't step away from that zone, you know, just keep on challenging yourself. Look, reach out for things that are a bit harder, don't stay in the norm. If you've been, if you've done a music video and you're an artist now, 
take it to another level. You know, what else can you do? You know, um, don't don't accept criticism from one person as being the thing that holds you back. You know, that person doesn't doesn't know you. You know, a, a lot of people are critical of our family for a number of different reasons, but really, it's just noise. You just got to keep on, you know, walking ahead, because at the end of the day, you're responsible for yourself. You know, you're responsible for your craft. You're responsible for the gift that God gave you. So when you stand before God, God can say, "Look, I gave you this talent, my man. What'd you do with it?" Well, I buried it. Okay, well, that's not why I gave it to you. You know, so just remember that if you're a rapper, a singer, a writer, director. Uh, if you do the whole thing, um, remember that's a talent. Not everyone is given that talent. It's your responsibility to keep on playing that trade until the day you die, man. Keep breathing it, and you just do it because you do it. Because it may not may not put bread on your table, but it brings you peace. It brings you. Um, it drives you. You know, like a like a really good athlete. That's what we are. You know, to try and get an athlete to do music. You know, it's they'll be just. They can't do it. We're just the same, but people don't take music the same way. We, we commit so much time and effort to what we do. So much time and effort. Days and days and days and weeks and months to create one three, minute, three and a half minute song. You know, so come on, man, give us our props. Mm -hmm. Never give up. Always eyes on the horizon. There's another sunset tomorrow. Keep on aiming for the new sunrise. Mm, no. Look, I mean, my journey is, is different, um, and it will be different for everybody in terms of um, the political arena. I mean, I, um, I've never aspired for the roles that I had, um, and that's because I was sort of brought up differently. The focus of our family was serve your family serve your elders, serve the community. But I've been blessed in the, in the sense that I've always been encouraged to put myself forward for certain positions. And I'm also a believer that um, in the same way that it is wrong for, the elders would say, it is wrong for somebody to ask to be a matai, that you must wait until the elders appoint you to be a matai, but your role is to be prepared at all times to take up the role. And in that sense, I've struggled with it that uh, the Palangi uh, culture is to put yourself up, you know, maneuver yourself for those positions. And and I and there's value in that. I'm not saying it's wrong. That's the nature of politics. But the Samoan in me also. Um, says I'm going to prepare myself but I will need support and it's better that somebody asks me to stand than to be putting myself forward. So in that sense um, I owe my being in the position that I'm at a whole number of people, many who have passed on and many who are still alive and I stay uh, in touch with. Uh, my mum was probably one of the um, my strongest supporters um, and she wasn't able to see me be in this position because in, in, I remember and when I would go off to these Labour Party meetings and um, and I'm cheering it there were some significant issues with you know lots of argument she always she never doubted that I would be able to deal with those things my dad on the other side would always be worried worried that I would ruin the family name worried that I might you know, be rude to some elder, worried that, um, for a number of reasons, because the Samoan, uh, in the Samoan context, politics essentially was war, because politics was only one side could win, <laughs> and the winning side took over the land. <laughs> uh, that's where the word ikumalo, ikumalo is the winning side, you know, and you took control of everything. Um, so I've been blessed for that, and absolutely right, um, you can never say that you're at the top of your game, particularly if you're driven by certain values and principles. And my, the driving force behind me is what can I do for the community that have put me there? What can I do for the community that, have represent, that I represent? Often we don't accept that the fact that we can speak two languages is something beautiful.
is an asset that the rest of New Zealand have not yet accepted. And we need to acknowledge and celebrate that and promote that. Third thing I would say is that um, I want to restate this because too many of our people don't, don't participate in politics. They don't vote or they don't care to vote. They tell me they don't want to be, they're not interested in politics. Well, I would say to you, if you say to me that you're not interested in politics, then you're telling me that you're not interested whether your children get a free education or not. When you say you're not interested in politics, you're telling me that you're not interested whether you're able to get free health care or not, or that your jobs are, have a minimum wage or that the terms and conditions are appropriate for you to support and sustain your family. Or if you say to me that you're not interested in politics because your business, then you're not going to care about what taxation you end up paying or whether there's support to facilitate you being able to export your goods or services. So I'm saying to you that everything is political and people need to pay attention to that. It's going to be our children that will inherit this country. It'll be our children that will either live in a country where they can realize their fullest potential or live in a country where they're still seen as, oh, here's those brownies again, pushing back behind the door, you know. So I think um, I would say be interested in politics and, 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 and don't be seeking just what's your personal gain, but really look at a higher level as what would benefit the country, what would benefit our community, because you can't protect individual rights until you protect collective rights, <laughs> you know. And so I think you've got to think more than just what you're interested in. Be interested in what happens to all the kids on your street, in the wider community, in all of our peoples. And I think the final thing I, I would say um, to aspiring politicians, um, I just say, you know, Talk to some of the elders about the values of service to the community. Too often we say, you know, pathway to service, leadership is through service. But when you look at those words, where you're sweating, where you're sweating blood, where your eyes are burning from the fire, where you've been cooking food for the, the village. Uh, that's giving your heart and body and soul to serving other people, not yourself. Because I think I would hate um, for the next generation of politicians that come into this space who feel this is a space where their interest is solely for what can I get out of this, rather than what legacy can I leave for the next generation. And, and I think it's not about the precision, it's what you will do with the precision. All of us, and I never refer to myself as a leader, but others will. And, and I think all of us are leaders. We don't have to declare that we are leaders, but we have to be willing to act and behave in, in ways where others see that somebody's caring <laughs> in the mental health space, is mm. taking a lead in this, somebody caring in the music space, somebody's caring in the business space, you know, and take that lead and not wait to be elected or to be called to a position. We all have that responsibility collectively. Um, and, and, and finally, you know, look to the babies, look to the young ones for inspiration. You know, uh, I've got some young ones at home who remind me constantly that um, just remember that it's taxpayers' money. <laughs> um, but politics is not for the faint-hearted. You will get punched um, along the way. It affects children. It affects family members. Um, and it's all that glorious stuff that you see on TV. Yep, that's part of it, but it's not the complete picture of it. There's a lot of heartaches in decision-making. There is a lot of pain and hurt when you put your life into certain policies and you get it so close and then you don't get the consensus around it. So 
it's not for the faint-hearted. You will get punched around, and I'm not trying to scare. I'm just wanting... I've seen too often um, some of our young people who just like the lifestyle. They see uh, the Prime Minister here and there, all of that. Yes, that's all part of it, but um, it's a lot of hard work. It's the only 24-7 job I've ever had because that phone has got to be left on all the time for either the boss calling or for the whips wanting to know, where are you? <laughs> Can you come down and talk to this? So 24-7 job. It's not a job that I want to do for the rest of my life, but obviously um, it, it, it's also a privilege to be able to be in a government um, and doing some work that I'm able to get the rest of my colleagues to support. Um, my biggest passion for a long time when I went into politics was the value of languages and culture. I finally feel that um, you know we've got an initial investment to establish a centre. It's never been done before, establishing a Pacific unit, uh, because whilst all other countries, New Zealand's Māori Language Commission, one language, we're trying to deal with number of languages and how do we make sure that those languages survive and thrive into the next generation. And, and that's just part of it. It's also about being able to ensure that our young people in particular really feel a sense of pride about who they are and knowing that they have a vital contribution to make to New Zealand. Awesome. All right. And on that note, cheers. Thank you so much for sharing.